0: Welcome to Backstory and Beyond with your host, Ward Kampf, seeker, innovator, and president of Northwood Retail. As Ward travels the country, he'll share the industry insights he's gained over a three decades long retail career, introduce you to trailblazing business leaders and disruptive founders, and uncover the real deal about some of the greatest cities in the world. This week, Ward is in Dallas with Carrie Davis, owner of Ellis Hill, one of the country's most unique stores for luxury paper goods, personalized gifts, and custom home decor. They'll discuss treasure hunting for exceptional goods around the globe, how an intentional approach to growth can ensure success, and the importance of brick and mortar. All that and more on this episode of Backstory and Beyond. So today we're going to visit probably one of the most unique
1: offerings in Dallas, Ellis Hill, with Carrie Davis. And it is probably not only one of the most unique stores in Dallas, it may be, as you listen to this conversation, one of the most unique stores in the U.S. Welcome.
2: I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I have known you forever.
1: Since probably 10 years old or something.
2: Who would have ever thought that we'd be having a conversation like this?
1: So let's dig into... How did it all start? Kind of give me the 30 second elevator speech.
2: Okay. So, the 30 second elevator speech, I guess, is I mean, I had a whole career in wholesale. I traveled all the time and I had two children. And when I, by the time I had my second child, I said, I, I there's just no way for me to travel. My husband had a job where he traveled. And so mm-hmm. I just left the business. And about five years later, I thought, I really am so bored. I have gone out to lunch every day I can go. So I decided that I was going to go to the stationery show. And I was going to start a paper business. I literally got on a plane by myself. I went there. I bought a bunch of books. I came home. And I started taking appointments in my house. And it just kind of grew from there. And pretty soon, you know, I hired a couple people to work for me. And it just kind of changed every year. Like my favorite thing first was Christmas cards and then it was stationery and Christmas cards and it was invitations and it was paper products for parties. Oh, we love this, let's do And it just kind of evolved.
1: So Carrie, you know, when you think about Ellis Hill, what is Ellis Hill? Just if you were to describe it.
2: If I would describe it, I would just say, basically the only outline I had was it needed to be custom. So whether that meant it needs to be personalized or it needed to be made for the person themselves. It, it could be anything. It could be dog toys, really, as long as they were unique, hard to find, customized, and the fine, it really, we would want something to be very fine upscale. It doesn't have to be untouchable, but something in some way that's just high quality, unique, and something that not everyone would have. We don't want to sell the same candles that they have at six stores or it doesn't have to be a custom candle but it wouldn't be the same thing that you could find in three stores in dallas or leather games or something that is in some way a wonderful gift one thing that we do a lot of that i think we're pretty well known for is putting things together like we sell say we someone wants to do these cups and we have the, two graphic designers on our staff and they do a great design and then we put it with a tray and a bottle of tequila and margarita salt and kind of package it all up in cellophane so it looks like a big kind of party in a on a tray or in a box and i'd say that those kind of things that are kind of multi-dimensional gifts are things we love to do um, and it makes it unique i would say other top sellers are any kind of linens dinner napkins cocktail napkins um, leather phone chargers or something unique like that. And I just think when they put that personalization onto it, that it makes it like, oh, and even as we've expanded, we still do a huge paper business. We work with a stationery company out of North Carolina. It's been a business for like a 100 years. And we, we sell it day in and day out. I mean, it's our bread and butter.
1: Sunday was in the office and had two handwritten notes. I still think that's a lost oh, yeah. art.
2: And you know what? People either write notes or they don't. I mean, it is such. It is a huge lost art. If you come in our store, you just think you have to have them because we have so much of that stuff. It's on the bulletin boards. It's everywhere, and we we sell it day in and day out.
1: In the early days, you know, when you were getting started and you were you know going from having a job, and starting this. How hard was it, especially as if you know some I've heard a lot of female founders say, "You know, look, people thought it was a hobby you yes. know they 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 didn't take you serious, you know that knowing your personality and knowing you, you know I know how serious and how competitive you are, but but the world doesn't know that you know when you go out and you start this, how hard was it
2: well?" It really was not that hard, I have to say. It was just one of those things that kind of just was organic. I started and I didn't really know exactly what it was going to be, so it was just kind of trial and error. So I first took appointments literally at my dining room table, and then I moved into the back of Cabana, and and it was just kind of word of mouth and friends, and it grew and grew, and then all of a sudden it was, I would say after about three years I thought, wow, this is really a viable business. And it was very piecemeal until then. And it was, you know, my hours originally, we had, we were open two days a week, then three days a week from nine to two. So I don't know that I, I wanted it to be something, but I really waited until, and and every time we've moved in a store in a bigger location, we have waited until we way outgrew the other one. We have never put the cart before the horse. So in this last move that we made this summer, we tripled our space, but we had, We were busting out of our space two and a half years ago. So I just thought it was something I really liked. And you know how the saying goes, as long as you like what you do, it's not really a job. I think there's a lot of truth to that until you find the headaches of it. And then the headaches, you think, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking?
1: What were the headaches? The headaches Because it sounds like you were a natural, right? Some people, like you said, it started, you started slowly. I think you're ready to change in your growth in Dallas – Thinking about from your table, you know, in your house to Mary Voss's cabana to two stores in Highland Park Village to Lover's Lane is as fast of growth of any business I've seen in Dallas, literally. And so, you know, going back, if if a lot of it came natural, and I think one of the things you guys did early is right being only open certain hours created a false sense of demand you know like it created real demand sure but the those hours aren't. were what drove the demand you know because people could only see you and then as you grew but what were the headaches i guess as you grew
2: i just think the headaches for anyone a small business are there's three of them the first is finding the right people in place because at especially with something like this you can find someone that's, it's a really hard job in the weirdest way, but retail is not always, people just need to be salespeople. You know, you could sell what you have on the floor. This, there's so many steps because of the customization aspect or the unique aspects of it. So number one, you needed someone that had a certain taste level. Number two, you needed someone that could follow through. Number three, you needed someone that was somewhat creative. So and somewhat business-minded. So to get all of those together is kind of a strange mix of people. And we had a lot of trial and error. And to find people that are interested enough. So that's number one. And number two, really, I guess, is logistically figuring out how to keep the store fresh. How to keep it new. Where you're going to go for the next find. Because of the internet, the world is so small, it's harder and harder to find things that you can't find anywhere. So... That is the biggest challenge every year is thinking, okay, where is our? what's the next step? So now that we have gone out to a bigger space, trying to figure out how we want to stock it is our next problem. To be in stock without too much, but to have the flexibility to continue to make our way around and not be too married to one thing, but to still be great supporters of our vendors. I mean, we would like to be our biggest vendor of everyone that we work with. So now our latest thing is that Wheezy Towels, which is internet only has picked that one store in the country and they, and we are their store. So that's kind of fun and different. It's customizable. It is personalizable and it kind of fits all, checks all of our boxes, but it's unique because really they've only been direct to consumer and people. That's great to be direct to consumer, but I think these people that are only direct to consumer are missing such an opportunity because not everyone shops only on Instagram.
1: You know, it's interesting. I was in a, a high-end store yesterday in Austin and saw a pair of shoes and you know, my wife's birthday's next week. And I knew she said, we've only got two sizes. One happened to be the right one. It's a sandal that's coming out, but I knew I had to get it. I knew I probably couldn't find it online. She said, look, this is the hottest selling sandal. we've sold out of everything. And I think the brick and mortar part of it, like, you know, people can't continually search. And that's what you're hearing more of, people that have brick and mortar. There has to be this online brick and mortar relationship. It's becoming really, really important. I do believe that direct-to-consumers are looking for places to sell either exclusively or one-off because I don't think it can be done all over the internet. I just don't.
2: I don't think so either. Right. People have to be able, I mean, they have a great reputation, but you have to be able to see it. And they open themselves up to a whole new customer. 100%. Because not every person is going to go to, they would want to see the towels and try them, you know, or see the product and try, especially if it's a luxury good. I mean, it's one thing to have a logo tennis shoe that you can find anywhere or a logo bag or the it bag, but to find household wares that match in person, what you need or what the feel you want is. I mean, you just cannot do that online. We Our website is a great tool. It does not replace the store. Sure. And, um, But it's a great tool for someone who's familiar with something, needs to reorder their stationery and the information is there, or a cosmetic bag. But I mean, you have dedicated people, then you have a photographer to shoot the, but you need to set it, whatever, every couple of weeks, you always have something fresh. You have costs if you want to shop Instagram, which are surprising costs. You have, if you shop through a dedicated service, you have to pay them. I mean, there are huge costs. I bet at the end of the day, it's not nearly as profitable as being inventory in a brick and mortar store. I know the volume surely makes up for it, but I guess if you have the right amount of volume, but with us, we don't have that kind of volume online because A lot of people at this price level or at this detail do want to see the product. So it's a very different situation than buying a dress. And then you have these stores and people buy six dresses and return five of them. And that is such an inflated sales. I wouldn't want that anyway, I don't think.
1: I think that's what, you know, again, on Friday when I heard this number, to that point are people buying three sizes and returning two of them. So it's something. There has to be a phenomenon. And then we've seen... You know in the digital space or the DTC space we've seen a home furnishing concept that's blown up but they also spent something to the tune of 40 million between marketing influence you know the number was outsized and now they realize they've got to go to physical and so there's just got to be some type of balance you know there does you know those like you said those hidden costs of the online or the ads may not support the business.
2: Well, I mean, I really like I was thinking through it and I was thinking if you had a person dedicated to it full time, if you had a photo shoot twice a week, first of all you have Shopify fees or whoever you, you mm-hmm. process through. If you do it through Instagram, you have Instagram fees, you have credit card fees, you have shipping fees and return fees. I mean, you we pay our girls commission in the store. It to me is way more costly. So the business has to make up for it. And you know, certain businesses are really good with that, I'm sure, and certain businesses are not. So I would be interested at the end of the day to see in five years what people end up doing.
1: Right. I think I think in twenty twenty one we've kind of started to peak the shipping okay. and the online. I mean the purchases are still high, but it's not the growth rate is not up and to the right like it was straight up. So it's going to be interesting to see where the balance. Oh, it is. Everyone's trying to figure it out. Right?
2: Oh, my gosh. And the shipping yeah. is insane. We use so many European vendors. It, it, I mean, we almost have to reprice our inventory. If, it, we might carry the same leather ice bucket from Spain. And, I mean, depending on when it is shipped and the surge pricing, it might vary by $50. I mean, that is a lot.
1: That is a lot. That is a lot. So, you know, as, as I think about founder businesses, there is a book, The Founder's Mentality, that somebody actually sent me. Chris Zook and James Allen wrote it, and there's kind of three pillars to it. I'd love to get your opinion of what you think of the three pillars. And one is, you know, you're the insurgent. The second pillar is the owner's mindset, the business mindset. You're thinking about cash flow, employees. You know, you're thinking about the business. And the third pillar, which I think is – I think I know where you're going to land, but I want to get your opinion is – Just this obsession with the front line. And that's on the sales floor or knowing how your sales are going, or, you know, because everybody gets data sets, they hear what other people are doing, you know, you get a macro set, but it can be very different than what, you know, your store can be absolutely on fire, it can be dead. So I'd love to kind of get your opinion of Of the three pillars. So, insurgent, the business mindset, and then just the obsession with the front line.
2: Well, I'm gonna. I would say to me that kind of sounds like the three steps, the natural progression of an owner's business. You're, the insurgent comes first. the uh, The owner's mindset to try to, you know, realize what your budget should be, where how much you can spend here, what you need to do for advertising your space, what the cost of that is, probably comes second. And then the front line has to be the most important thing, I think, because you don't have anything if you don't have that. And I have no idea how you would own a business or a retail business, I should say, and not be intimately involved with every single daily bit of sales. I mean, that, I think, is all that we're really concerned about at this point, because with that comes everything else. When you have the right product or you know what product you need, what you're not doing with, who is good at selling what, where this comes from, what kind of person wants to see this in the store... I don't know how you know that without working on the floor in the store.
1: I think a lot of people get caught on owning a business, or they grow real fast, they want to sell it, or they like being a founder or being with other founders or being a CEO and being with, you know, rather than just what's going on every day with their business. And I think that's really what separates the winners and losers. You know, this wasn't overnight. You've scaled this business. It's one of the best businesses, not only in Dallas, it's one of the best most unique offerings in the U S and I think the only way it's gotten to that point is you and Margaret have been in there every day. And
2: it's from being in the store or seeing, finding something we both travel a lot. I do think travel is, is one place where you do see unique things because it does, it does anyone no good to go to three stores down the street from you and try to buy the same thing. I'm always so surprised when a vendor calls us, we have a vendor from Italy that's a leather vendor and we, do business with them every single day, and they'll say, oh, such-and-such such store from Dallas or such-and-such such store from Houston wants us to open. What do you all think? And I just think, wow, everyone, there's a lane for everyone. Yeah. And I think this is our lane with them. It's up to you all, but, yeah. and I, but that is the way I feel about it. I don't want to just go to some store and find what everyone else is selling. But that is that is always the the fine point.
1: You know, one of the things I would love to know is, you know, are there three or four stores that you guys pay attention to?
2: We go, number one, we go to Mary Mahoney in Palm Beach, which is not really a paper store, but it is a great tabletop and gift and things like that that we've really grown into. In New York, I would say we go to Scully and Scully. I do not ever go to New York without making a loop on the sixth floor of Bergdorf Goodman to see what they have. I don't ever go to any town where I don't go to every store that I can find that I think looks like a beautiful store. I've never bought at Dallas Market. The only reason being is that there are so many great stores in Dallas that have all the similar stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's plenty of stuff for everyone to have. Right. We shop Europe a lot. We shopped in Dallas and Atlanta, and then we really branched out and started going to Paris to Maison Objet. And um, this past year, we shopped Milan and Venice. I've shopped London. We shop in Spain. We have some great leather vendors in Spain and linen vendors. We've been to Madeira, this island off the coast of Portugal. I mean, it is just flat out in the ocean with nothing around it, and literally, they are the best linen people in the entire world. Um, and so that's who makes our linens. And we have is it a, whole, a culture there? I mean, is it it's a, cultural a culture thing? there. It is a culture there. And they have these ladies, these old ladies that live in the hills of, of Madeira. And these women hand-stitch everything. So that in that situation, we we knew that all the linens we kept finding that we liked were from Portugal. So we went and found two factories there and went and talked to them. And so then we put together our own linen program with them. So we have done a lot of that. Really, we I mean, if we find a line we like, we go to the factory so we meet the people. And that is really important because once you have that relationship, it's so much easier to deal with them, especially when you have a, a language barrier. Like the Italian people, the Gio, Bagnera, I mean, we, get, we see them all the time. Our friend Eric Gushu in Paris, I I'd never go without going to his store. And Marie Dodge, same thing. I never go without seeing her. But it just is always good to meet these people in person. This um, winter, I went to all these glass factories in Murano to try to find different Murano glass people and to all these people that do marbleized paper. And then we went to a bunch of different leather vendors. So things we find, then we just went there and introduced ourselves and met the people and try to get some relationship with them.
1: It sounds like you're dealing with best in class in the world. And if I'm hearing you right, they all know you and they're connecting you with other people or you guys are searching for it. And it's this magical, this is what I think is great. You know, that's why, when people say, Hey, you're in retail, you know, even during the pandemic, I said, listen you guys, things will be fine. You know, we're going to have some, you know, things that don't work, but there are people that have really good businesses. And you know, what I found was the founders of the business were in much better shape. The leaders that had built the business from the ground up, they knew where everything was and they knew how to do it again. And they were excited. And I think there's some things that have come out of this where You know, people's business has even grown and gotten better and stronger. You know, it sounds like you guys are like on a treasure hunt 24-7. That's that's exactly what it's like.
2: But we do. I feel like we are on a treasure hunt because every year we want to find, if we just find two great lines a year, we're so happy about that because it's hard to find two great lines, whether it's linen, china, flatware, an artist, a new paper, I mean, whatever it is. And it's funny, I mean— the European companies are much more loyal than the American companies. Sure they are. I mean, yeah. I can't tell how many times we have Joe Wagnera, who is, is this big leather person we use. They have come to us three times a year with different vendors close or in Texas that want to carry it or different stores. And they were like, "Are you have you heard of them? Would you like that? And we really just say, do whatever you need to do for your business, but we hope you'll stay loyal to us. And we haven't had one problem with them doing that. We don't have 10 engraving companies we use we have three we have three and we push business to all three of them rather than being so spread out and that is what we try to do is find something that has enough depth for us to do all kinds of things with them
1: i remember you and i were riding into to we were on the same flight to new york city and it was probably five weeks before you know the world was went crazy but i do think you had told me about the backgammon set that you had made in italy yeah and, you know, it was a high price point and that you were like, you know, this is, you know, it was a big number for the backgammon, but you sold them all.
2: Well, so this was just this vendor that we really do a lot of business with, and they started this whole leather game board and game boards. I mean, they have dominoes, chess, backgammon. Really, you can take a board and you could do the case of it in one color and the points in another and the background in another. And so we love this because it falls right into our category. So we said, you know what, we'll try some. I think we bought probably three or four, sold them right away. And, you know, they're a couple thousand dollars each. They're a lot of money for what they are, but they're also beautiful. And now, I mean, we just keep them in stock as a basic. And we do that with a lot. They do poker sets, card cases. I mean, no. I remember you
1: telling the story. You're like, you know, we bought X amount. And I don't think it was... A total risk to the business, but you're like, this is a big yeah. number. I hope and, we're gonna sell you know, them. Yeah,
2: yeah, we have done that with a lot of things. We yeah. have these little ladies that we sell from this wonderful artist in France, and they're like four thousand dollars, but they're really these beautiful pieces of art. And every one of them is different. And I mean, the first time you buy something, like you just have no idea. We bought six or eight. Now we end up we buy a lot more than we did at that time. We had a smaller store, and still, you don't want to bomb when you bought. 15 pieces of something that's that expensive and have everyone hate it because it happens.
1: Well, I think one of the things I go back to the founder business, the uniqueness and the experience, I think that all that, if it's handmade, it's custom, it's personalized, people will pay for it. They know it when a guy go back to, they know it when they see it, but it is, you know, as a leader, as a founder, somebody that runs a business, there are times where you're like, you know, if we miss. Hope they <laughs> like it.
2: <laughs> we did that. It's we. not
1: like you're going to, you know, you're going to half off. I mean, yeah. that's just not your business. Yeah, we're business, not a sell store. Yeah. I
2: mean, and people are probably <laughs> like, oh, my God, is there ever a sale here? And we did. We bought a bunch of um, crystal one year that was all in different colors. And I mean, if it did not move in the first probably 90 days, we're like, oh, we have <sighs> thousands of pieces of this. And it kind of slowly but surely, but we have not bought back into it. <laughs> We kind of wean it out and move on to that and think that's not really our deal. But we didn't know that. We had sold so many Murano glasses that we then tried this other kind of crystal. And sometimes things don't work.
1: I think, I think anybody that can do that is fearless. They're a leader. They're a risk taker. You know, I think it's really creative people that can do stuff like that, that understand who their customer is. And you know what? We can push the limit. And you know what? They'll see value in what they bought. One of the things I think getting into is just like Dallas, you think of Dallas and, you know, we always were considered, we were never considered a gateway city. We're getting there. We're close. You obviously have this, like I said, generational Dallas business, but you have to be seen, you know, we both talked about traffic today, this customer coming in and just tell me like, is it East coast, West coast? Are you having to buy differently? I
2: will say we have lots from California. We have quite a few from the different places in the East Coast, New York, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, all over Texas, I would say. Uh, Weird places, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, Chicago, we have a big kind of a little grouping of people San Antonio. You know, it's funny, we have pockets where maybe one person came and shop or from their friend gave them a gift from there. That happens a lot. Someone will, give a, someone will give them a gift and they go, well, what else do you have? They'll call the store and say, my friend gave me the best gift. I'd love to do this for my daughters-in-law. Right.
1: You know, what are the trends you see? If you were to say today, like...
2: I mean, everyone's into new plates, new dishes, new glasses, new linens, and now people are back in with all kinds of entertaining. It's kind of like 1950s coming back again where people are at cocktail parties all the time. Whether or not they're an invitation or not, people are glad to see other people.
1: Where do you think, you know, 12, 24 months this goes? Do you think it's just more and more? I think know? so. Yeah,
2: I think so. I mean, I think that the tabletop just keeps on growing. I think the funniest thing is I think the growth is in the higher end. I don't think people want $3 napkins to nope. use. And I think there's a lot of that out there, people kind of copying, but I don't really think that's where it goes. I think it stays in a a higher end situation and really, really whimsical, not basic. People want unique rather than traditional.
1: We were in in 2020, we were in Denver in a strategy session. I said, you guys, it's going to all be about unique, unique spaces, unique real estate, unique hotels you know, unique places. I mean, I think that's where the world's going. I, I, don't, totally I don't, homes, you know, you look at the homes that are being built, you know, contemporary 10, 15 years ago, wasn't something you would see in Dallas, you yeah. know, and now it's all this very unique and people will pay for unique, Yes. you know, new and new ideas, I think, you know, and I think that continues. So just digging in kind of on, Just everything you do and being the real deal. You know, I think in the downtime, just personal questions, your go-to in Dallas. I mean, I know I see you every once in a while, but I'm sure you have.
2: Like like, go-to for dinner? Yeah.
1: You know, go get a drink. You know, if you're going to go have a nice meal, if you're going to do Tex-Mex, if you're going to go get a burger, like.
2: Okay. So I would say go-to is always Mexican if it's casual. Yeah. And it really always is Mico in Holland Park Village. I would say best Tex-Mex ever really is that way it started out. They are most famous, I bet, for their very strong drinks. The Mambo Taxi. Mambo Taxi Taxi and the Yorona and all their great margaritas. It is a family place and an adult place. I mean, when my children were little, that's where we walked every Friday night to go to dinner. Well, you
1: know, Las Vocares was in there and, you know, Ray had the, opportunity and put me casino and you know it wasn't really the retail that changed it it was the food and we always talk about food being an anchor and you know i remember when carly maybe seven eight nine years ago was with a group of girls my daughter and kim kardashian she had just left and the girls were still there with you know yeah and you know it just it was a saturday and everyone went crazy but that's who you know that's they draw the community in and, and, everyone. and everyone else, you know, like
2: it's true. I it's just think go-to. it's, it is really such a Dallas staple. It's always kind of fun people to see. And there's always a lot going on around yeah, it, yeah. but it is a great restaurant for people out of town, kids, families, grandparents. It doesn't matter.
1: And just rounding the base is the hidden gem of Dallas.
2: I love Knox Henderson. I love all along the Katie, Katie, Trail ice house. I mean, yeah, those are, there are great places like that.
1: The trail, you know, in the last 20 years has transformed Dallas. It has. Like the High Line. Like, I just think people... Yeah. We don't think of it daily, but I mean, for the young, for everyone. Like, yeah. I know all ages. That is the most happening part of Dallas.
2: I totally agree with that.
1: And then just can't miss, if someone's going to come to Dallas, where would you tell them they have, you know, one, two, three places that...
0: They, I would they, say j-
2: for sure to go through Highland Park Village because yeah. it's a treat. I mean... I do think Dallas is beautiful. Yeah. I think that the lights, if it's Christmas time, the lights in Highland Park Village are hands down the best, and you should probably drive through all of Highland Park.
1: Yeah, I would say you take people to Highland Park Village. I don't care who they are; they're blown it is, away. It doesn't a, matter what what day it is, or
2: yes, it is the a most Christmas. beautiful. It's the most beautiful Christmas they have done. I mean, I think Stephen Summers has done his research. They, I
1: think they listen. I think they bought it, and I think they've, they have they have done. Blown, you know
2: so much i mean they just finished putting brick everywhere well now they have one section left but it it has every crazy high-end store that there is i mean it really does we had two different locations there and we loved it it's a great place but it is always hard to park because everyone's in there and it is there are so many people in there i
1: was with a guy that's probably from one of the oldest families in dallas and I remember him saying about a year and a half ago, he went in to get a Mother's Day gift and they, he gave him a 214 number and they said, we rarely see this anymore. You know, it's become international. Oh, yeah. you know, they're seeing people from all around the world, Mexico, uh, they yeah. have put best in class. I really do. They I think have. they've done a phenomenal job. I think you guys you know, were part of it and you know, that'll be part of your legacy is that you were in there. And I think that's phenomenal. Um, so I want to thank you for coming and doing this today, and you know taking the time. I know you're busy, but I appreciate it.
2: Oh my gosh, it's so my pleasure.
1: Lastly, where do we find you?
2: Well, we are our storefront is at 5029 West Lovers Lane. Our we have an Instagram that's at Ellis Hill Dallas, and our website is ellishill.com. So any of those places.
0: It's been a pleasure. This has been Backstory and Beyond, hosted by Ward Camp. To learn more about Northwood Retail or the destinations from today's episode, visit BackstoryBeyond.com.